Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Well, Jan mentioned we're at the end of the week two. We're at the uh, 29th day of the first month, so the new month starts on Sunday night. I'm going to pass these around. Take one, take something, pass it down if you don't mind. Don't be uh, alarmed by the content. It is a math question that I would like you to complete. For those of you who are listening via recorded message, I will read the math question. A graduating class has 400 students. 60% of them are male. 20% of the members in the graduating class took calculus. How many males in the graduating class took calculus? That's the question. It's a question that comes from the SAT, NSAT example exam. Don't be, if if your math is 30 years behind you, don't worry. There's a concept I I want to get through here. So work through it if you can. And then when someone has an answer and a method to get to it, um, Stick up your hand and, and walk us through it. Again, for those listening on tape, or on re- tape, there's a an acronym that's a long ago <laughs> via the computer 400 students a graduating class has 400 students 60% of them are male 20% of the members in the graduating class took calculus therefore how many males in the graduating class took calculus daniel 48 why do you say logically So you're making an assumption that's not there. So don't make an assumption that's not there. So you think it's impossible to solve. Who had 48? You had 48? Anybody else have any other answers? Daniel is exactly right. I think we all knew that was going to happen, but that is exactly right. You cannot make the assumption. There's two facts here. There's one fact that in the entire student body... There's 60% uh, males and 40% females. And then in the, from that graduating class, 20% of them took calculus. But there, it does not say what the split is. You can't make that assumption. So the actual answer is there's not enough information in the question to provide an accurate answer. Most would say 48. And that's, what's, that's what is there. I, what I didn't provide you, was on the SAT, there's a multiple choice. 24, 48, 80, 240, and it cannot be determined from the information given. I just completed, as many of you know, and I haven't hidden this fact, that I just completed uh, a year-long Bible reading program. For all the studies that I've done, for how many years I've been coming to church and reading the Bible, I never actually read the Bible from front to back. Uh, (laughs) I never actually read the Bible from front to back. Uh, 
Um, uh, certainly uh, uh, something that uh, mo- many of you probably have. I won't take a show of hands of who has and who hasn't. But despite all the years of study over the years, I've never read it through from beginning to end like a book. And I tried one year. I tried a couple of years ago and got to the end of Genesis and then didn't have the stamina to see, see it through studying other things. I wasn't not doing Bible study. I just didn't have the stamina to see this project through. However, this year, I started, well, last year, just after Passover, I started, and I saw it through, and I completed it in four days less than a year. I was, I was shocked, actually, that I actually saw it through, but very, very happy that I did. And as many of you who have, you can attest that it was, it was quite an experience. It, it was an experience that I, I can't tell you how, how, what an amazing experience it was to read the Bible through from front to back. And I can't believe I hadn't, I had taken this long to do it. I'm not ashamed to say that it took me this long to do it. I have a particular Bible app that allowed me to take extensive notes along the way as well. It's interesting, many of you that I've talked to, or those who I've talked to that have done this in the past, read it probably at, the, at least the first time through, probably read it at the beginning of their walk with God. I'm several many years into my walk with God since I started coming to church when I was five baptized uh, 20 some odd years ago and I read it for the first time having a deep knowledge of doctrine a deep knowledge of the history but never having read it through so it was really interesting to me to see a whole lot of things play out in the the recorded word after having studied and understood the doctrines and the stories and the history behind it all there are many things I learned many specific things obviously from reading the bible through all the notes that I took. So we could go into a whole lot of very specific things that hit me that I saw. But I wanted to cover, cover a couple of points today, just by, by way of one point in particular, by the way of introduction. Because there were a couple of overriding themes that, I, that, I hit, that hit me that I saw through my, my walk through the Bible. The first one seems kind of obvious. But to see it play out through the pages of the Bible, which I knew to be true, which I've read, at, I've probably read all the parts of the Bible at some point many times, but never in the order that it is here in the written word, complete from front to back. But to see this first thing play out through, the, and that's the story flow, the story flow of the Bible. We call it, we've called it the timeline. We see the historical record. We see the theme of the Bible play through. And to see it play through from front to back really, really, really cemented the fact that this Bible is the Word of God. Let's go back to, by just by, and we're right, really right into the introduction of the message right now. So go back to Genesis chapter 1. And to see the, the storyline, the theme of the Bible, the, 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 the historical record, the timeline, whatever word, words we want to call it, to see it play out from Genesis through to Revelation was particularly uh, faith-building. It really, what I knew to be true is even more true to me today than it was last year. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall excuse me, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And, and it was so. So God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. We talked about that, I think, back at the, uh, a few weeks back, that God saw it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So we start out here seeing that God is making a family. We know that to be true. We know that to be the theme of the Bible. God starts out this great plan uh, uh, that he has here, and that is to create a family. We move forward to chapter 3. We're not going to read the entire Bible like I did. Don't worry. Genesis chapter 3, just to proceed along the storyline here. Genesis 3, verse 22. Then God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So based on our choices, which we are very familiar with that story, he had to shun us from paradise. He locked us out. He guarded it with, with angels and a flaming sword. And he did that lest another race of beings be sin-filled as spirit beings. There could not be another race of beings have access to the tree of life, have access to spirit life, and be sin-filled. So he had to block, block that off. And then became the question, how do we get them back? How do we fix this? How do we fix this? So he raises up a people... First Israel, now the church, so that mankind can see that his ways work. Let's go to Genesis 12. Genesis 12. And again, this is just by way of introduction. Genesis 12. He raises up a people to start this process of bringing his people back to him. Genesis 12 and in verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And here starts the covenant he makes with Abraham that extends down through various covenants into Israel and then obviously the further on with the coming, second coming of Christ, the birth of the church, when we know that whole storyline that takes us through the initial plan of God, through the first fruits that we're working on, that we're uh, looking forward to now with, with uh, Pentecost. So he raises up this people. We know the historical record now shows throughout the rest of Scripture God's never-ending mercy in trying to get his people to follow his ways, whether it be Israel, whether it be the church, but he now, and as part of what the, the youth study and to the young people, what great job that you did today with your, your presentations on the, the various judges. But the judges were just one aspect of, the, of God's never-ending mercy, of always reaching down and giving his people another chance. This ultimately culminates in the life, death, and resurrection of his son to give us undeserved access to his kingdom through payment of death 
for our sins. And of course, we just came through the Passover season about that. Which then, Revelation 22, let's go to the end of the story. Revelation 22. And when you go through, and we did it, we've done it in our youth studies. We did it last year at the feast when we walked through the timeline of the Bible. Revelation 22, and in verse 1, we see now John's future vision of God's kingdom. Verse 1, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. God's plan from Genesis is finally fulfilled in the future that we have access to the tree of life, we have eternal life, and we reign with Christ and God forever. God, his family is created, his family is spirit, and it brings the story around full circle all the way back to the tree of life. We started out with that, we end with that, with our vision of the future. Again, we all know this. This isn't a secret, this isn't anything that is earth-shattering. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. But to see the entire listing of stories, prophecies, letters, and instructions all point to this very basic yet simple and consistent theme really cemented the fact that this is absolutely the Word of God. Despite many centuries, despite all the authors, all the different people, cultures, that all went into putting this together. All of the folks that died subsequent to the writers to to give us access to this book. So that theme as I was reading through it was was crystal clear from the the patriarchs to the judges to the prophets to the the new covenant to the, the gospels and into the writings of Paul and the apostles. There is a second overriding lesson that I would like to talk to you about today. It didn't actually hit me until about the last month of my reading. It is easy for us to pull, out, to pull scriptures out of the Bible for use in our studies or in presenting messages where we will pull out individual scriptures. The messages of these scriptures can be right. But by pulling scriptures out of them out of context, we actually limit our understanding of the entire message of the Bible. And I want to walk through some examples with you today of scriptures that we all know that teach us valuable lessons. I'm not saying the lessons that we learn from them, pulling them out, are wrong. But when we pull them out and look at them individually, we actually miss the point of the, entire, of the, of the passage that they're in. And it, I, I, back on the first day on Love and Bread, we covered one when we talked about uh, God loves a cheerful giver. And that'll be the first one we go to just to, to recover it again. And I saw it there, but then as I was going through Paul and Peter, Paul and Peter specifically, uh, talk a lot about the things that jumped out at me. It's like, I've heard these scriptures for years, and I know the lessons behind them, but I'm reading the Bible, I, I, again, reading this in context, I'm going, that's not what this is about at all. It's a good lesson, much like we go back to that math question, it's pro- it could be, 48's a reasonable answer. It could be 48, 
but we don't know that it's 48 because we need more information. So that's we're going to walk through some lessons here and look at some scriptures that of their own accord are good lessons, but that's not what, the, that's not what it's talking about unless you get, read the entire passage and get it in context. We're also going to look at a, f- a couple of examples where false doctrine is used because people pull out a single sentence. And when you read the whole concept, it's like, that's not what it's saying at all. Because what I really want to do is submit the fact that this is the word of God. And as much as I thought I knew for all the years that I've studied, there are things that you learn every day and you, we can read the Bible through and you learn so much from it. So much so that it will, it will cement in, in, your, in, your, in your understanding that this is absolutely the word of God. And it, because it is very important that we read the Bible in context. We've heard that several times over the last few years, but it is so true. Before we continue, I'd like to just, as I just did, touch a little bit on that math problem. That 48 seemed like a reasonable answer. It's what I came up with when I, when I looked through it. 48 seems like the reasonable answer. But like Daniel, there was something about the question that just didn't sit right with him because you can't take two separate facts and necessarily combine them. There's the fact that there were 60-40 split men to women here, but 20-80 split for uh, graduates who took calculus versus those who didn't. When you look at that separately, those are two completely separate facts. They do maybe override like a Venn diagram like where you, you this, the, the sets sort of, they can overlap, but we don't know what the overlap is. So we can't go and assume something that's not there. 48 could be the right answer. It's certainly one of the possible answers but we don't know it to be the right answer because we haven't got the full context of the situation. And it's important to see things in their full context. So let's start with some good lessons. Second Corinthians chapter 9. We did cover this in the, the uh, offertory on the first day of Unleavened Bread, but let's look at it again from this context as a jumping off point to what we're talking about here today. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and in verse 7. And if again, as I mentioned then and I'll mention it now, anyone who's been in the coming to a church of God group for any number of years, this is one of the scriptures that will be read during an offertory message. 2 Chronic 2 Corinthians, sorry, I keep saying Chronicles. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7. So let each one let each one give as he purposes in his heart not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, in and of itself, that's a very valuable lesson. We can't argue the fact that God loves a cheerful giver. God wants wants us to give as we are able. He wants us to give out of the goodness of our hearts. And we need to be cheerful when we're giving. We need to want to give to God. A very, very valuable lesson. But let's read it in context. Now, verse 1, the same chapter, 9, verse 1. Now, concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready. Now, pause there for a second. Let's hold your finger there. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 16. Let's look at this, what he was referring to. Going back. 
1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. This is ending his first letter. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. On the first of the week, sorry, on the first of the week, we know what that means. Let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be, may, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you appoint, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. You can flip back to Second Chronicles, Second Corinthians 9. So we're looking back in time to the end of his first letter where he was encouraging them, asking them to that amongst like all the other congregations, they were going to take up a collection for the folks in Judea who were being persecuted. And it, it, at that point, it sounded like a, here's what we're going to do. Maybe a, a, a bit of a, of a, of an instruction from Paul. But as we see in what we just read in the first couple of verses of chapter nine and second Corinthians, they took this on. This wasn't something they felt they, they had to do. This is something they wanted to do. They were, they were, they were all for it. They had made plans for this. Their, their, their excitement about it was something that Paul took to other congregations and said, you know, let's look at these, the Corinthians, they want to do this. This is, we're looking forward to this. So now let's, with that in mind, let's go back to where we, where we read here. Verse three, yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always, have, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So yes, God loves a cheerful giver. But the point of what he was trying to say was, you've been talking about this for a year, and you've done nothing about it. We're about to come and collect, and I don't want you to be embarrassed that nothing is ready. So give if you want. Don't give if you don't want. But you might, let's, if you're going to give, let's get it prepared so you're not embarrassed so when we come and collect, you're not, there's, there's not nothing there to collect. And all this stuff that we've been talking about for the last year is not gone for naught because you said you were going to do this. Because God wants a cheerful giver. That's a whole other kettle of fish than God loves a cheerful giver. Yes, a very good lesson. God loves a cheerful giver. But that wasn't the point. The point was they had been talking about this for over a year and had done nothing about it. And there was going to come a time when they were going to come and collect. And what was going to be available? Were they going to be embarrassed that nothing was there? Was people, were people going to show their true colors and show that they were really giving because Paul said they had to give? Or were they going to give because they wanted to give? That was the lesson behind this. So we can, again, here's an example of pulling out a scripture to say God loves a cheerful giver, which is a good and godly lesson, but not the entire context of the story. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. 1 Peter 3, 15. 
Here's one that we've read for years. I can remember as, as far back as I possibly could go. This was a, a, one of the, the lessons we learned as followers of God. First Peter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So you're, we're talking about evangelism. We're talking about sharing our, our, our faith. We go out into our schools, our workplaces, and we get asked questions. We need to study because we need to be ready to answer these questions when people ask it of us. That's reasonable. That sounds logical. That's, it's, it's, it's a good lesson. Know, know your scriptures. Know, know your faith so that if you're asked about it, if you're asked anything about it, you can give an answer of the hope that lies within you if you're asked, wherever you're asked by whoever you're asked. Let's read what First Peter was about. Verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And dropping down to chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it is strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. The time that Peter was writing was a time of deep persecution. We know that with the Roman Empire and all that they were going through. Peter was coming to the end of his life. And he was writing to the church about the persecution that was going to happen to them, and by extension, to those in the end time. There will come a time when we could be seriously persecuted for our faith. We've heard Pastor Adrian talk about the Islam and the coming of Islam and all that that means, his uh, several messages that went into some detail there. Yes, be ready to answer anyone in your life who asks a question. But this has everything to do with having a gun to your head to say, do you believe in Christ? Because if you say yes, I will kill you. Be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks why you would give up this life to say, yes, I believe in Christ. That's the defense you're asked to give. That doesn't downplay how we can apply it in this, in this life that we go out this week and, and uh, 
Landon was telling me they had a math trip this week to the works. I don't know how they pull us off at school where they sent them to a restaurant to, to, to have a math trip so that they could determine receipts and tips. It was all based on justifying it through math. But he told me that before the meal, he bowed his head to pray. And I was like, I would, ne- I would never have done that growing up in school. I would have hopefully said something in my head, but it would have been eyes open. And, and while I was talking, I would not have done that. That's a good example, and I'm sure everyone else has a good examples like that. But I was, I was surprised that he did that. That's a good example of answering the faith that you have in you. Why are you praying? But that's not with a gun to your head. And that's not with someone saying, if you say yes, you will die. There could be a time coming in our lives when that will happen. There certainly was back then when Peter wrote it. We know of times of Christians in the past, over the past 2,000 years, that that has happened. There's a historical record of that. And the Bible clearly says it will come again. Whether that's during our lifetime or not, that's not for us to say. But be ready to answer for the hope that lies within you in the midst of persecution is a whole different story than being ready to answer if someone at work says, why did you, why did you not come in that Friday? Well, I was at a church service, and we can talk about that. That's great. If you're asked that, there's an opportunity to, to talk about your faith. But that scripture, when you read it in context, is about saying yes with a gun to your head or with your life on the line. Because if the word's out of my mouth is I believe in Jesus Christ. That might be your last words in this life. But Peter is saying, defend Christ. And we see that here when we just simply read the next couple of verses, never mind what we read, when we simply read the next couple of verses, having a good, verse 16, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than doing evil. Again, a whole other lesson by reading that verse in context. Flip forward to chapter 4. Verse 17. And again, we won't take time to read First Peter. We've, we've done it before and we'll probably cover it at some point in the future. But that's the whole message of, his, of this letter. is about standing true in your faith, in your Christian walk, in the face of persecution. So we see another verse here that is used. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Judgment is now on the house of God. But when we read it in context, it takes on a whole different meaning. That you know what? There could come a time when we are asked of our faith, and it means giving up this life. And, and Peter's message here is do not worry about this life. Judgment, is, judgment then will be upon you. Because if you say no, if you deny Christ, Scripture is clear what happens when we deny Christ and we choose this life over the next one. So yes, judgment is on the house of God and we, there's debates that happen. What does that mean that judgment is on the house of God? It kind of clears things up when you read the whole book in context. The judgment is on the house of God. Philippians chapter 2. We sort of covered this last year, or two years ago, when we went through the book of Philippians. But let's look at it again in terms of what we're talking about today, and that is pulling a verse out of context and then missing the entire point of the passage. So for us, this is by way of a bit of review, but the point 
is the same. Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in, in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And of course, we know what we talked about here, that this is not an individualistic statement. It certainly, there's a validity to it when you look at it as an individual. Yes, I must work out my own salvation. I must, that salvation is a process. That salvation is something, it is a journey that we need to work through with God, with the help of the Holy Spirit, with Christ in, with Christ in our lives. That we need to work through our salvation. That we That this gift that we get, once we receive it, that we need to follow a path, that we need to obey Christ, that we need to, to, to live for good works, that there's work that needs to be done after we receive this gift of salvation. But when we look at the message to, to the church in Philippi, we know from our studies before that this was a group message. We, we go back to chapter 1. You can just look there. That he's, he's reading he's verse, chapter 1, verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. So he's writing it not to any individual, but to the group as a whole. He talks to them, we just read in verse 12, my beloved. He's talking to them. That's a singular word that that describes the whole group. So he's not talking to any one person that is his beloved, but it's the congregation as a whole that's his beloved. So we know that. We see that he's talking to this whole message to Philippi is in the group setting, trying to get them to understand that as a community, this is how you need to act as a community. And as a community, let's work out the salvation together. And we see that amongst many other places that we studied in chapter 4. Chapter 4, where we come across this dispute between these two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, where the congregation was encouraged to help them through it. This wasn't an individual. And we see that chapter 4, verse 2. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So here the letter is written to the entire congregation. He uses beloved, he uses brethren, all of these single, single group words several times with instructions on having healthy, dynamic, serving congregations. Working out your own salvation is a good lesson, which something we must take seriously, that when I'm at home, when I'm, when I'm on the job, I need to remember that I am God's child at all times, that what that people see me, they need to whether they glorify God now or whether they when they learn of God in the future, they remember back and they glorify God through our our actions. That they know well, there's something different about that person. Working out our own salvation, but seeing this whole letter and seeing it in the terms of this context, we see it. It's clear, this is a community, a community instruction, that together we work out our salvation that we're, we're a family, we're a community here. And understanding the community dynamics throughout the entire letter helps us fully understand what Paul was talking about. So we, we, if we, we pull again, we pull out that scripture, it's got valid lessons for us. But when we see it in the context of the whole, it brings on deeper meaning. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at another one.
2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we see here an example that we need to study, that we need to properly understand, to be diligent in our studies. Valuable lessons. We all study God's word. We want to be diligent in studying God's word. Certainly a very valuable lesson when we look at it. But understanding that this was Paul's final letter from prison to his son of the faith, his companion, Timothy. And these were final instructions for Timothy and for the brethren. So Paul is in Rome. He's within months of being uh, being killed, crucified, assassinated, whatever word we want to use, martyred. Yes, it talks about studying rightly God's word. But let's look at it in context. Verse 14. Remind them, he tells Timothy, of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of, the, of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone whose names in the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Do not succumb to false doctrine, he tells Timothy. He's at the end of his life. Paul has seen a lot of things. Yes, study the word of God. Yes, be diligent in your studies. But do not succumb to false doctrine. Do not listen to idle babblers who come in to try to stir the pot. Who do, not li- do not listen to folks who say Christ never existed. Christ was not resurrected. There is no God. Do not listen to folks who say things that we have proven time and time and time again are not true. Do not even entertain them. Study to show yourself approved so that, that's the point. When we pull that out, we miss the so that. We miss the context. That there will come people who, in, in your life who will want to get you off track, who will try. We, we know that Satan has marks on us because we believe in God. We believe in Christ. We believe in his, his sacrifice. We believe in the kingdom of God. We're enemies of the enemy. And there will come a time when somebody will want to get you off course. Paul is saying, do not succumb to that. And tell them, he said. Recall his words here. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive afterwards to, with to no profit. Don't get into senseless, useless debates. Don't get into things, into, into things that do not really represent ironing, sharpening iron, building the community, strengthening each other, edifying each other. Discussions that edify, discussions that sharpen iron, those are good. Idle babblings, um, as he calls it here, words of no profit, don't even entertain that. Don't get sucked into that. But strive 
to rightly divide the word of truth. So there's, there's dividing the word of truth. We can do it rightly or we can do it for, for vain reasons, for, for uh, non-profitable reasons. Rightly divide the word of truth. When we divide the word of truth, let's do it rightly, let's do it together, and let's do it properly. Obviously, Paul knew from his past, his, his, his uh, past as a Pharisee, his past at studying at the feet of Gamaliel, that God's people have a history of weakness, following after other gods, following after other, other doctrines, following after other faiths, is rampant throughout the pages of history. And Paul knew that. And in his final letter, one of his final messages was, remind them not to do that. Remind them not to get sucked into idle babblings, arguing about meaningless things, breaking the community through idle babblings or things that are of no profit. Remind them to do, be diligent in, in dividing the word of God. When they study, make it diligent, make it profitable, make it, make it worthwhile and edifying. Let's go to Matthew 7. We're going to switch tracks here just a little bit to look at a couple of examples of pulling scriptures out whereby we're actually misleading people. Not in the cases that we did where we actually had valuable lessons. They were just incomplete lessons. The five examples that we read, the, the lessons that are there that we can pull these scriptures out, they're valuable. They, they are meaningful. They actually help us. But they're out of context and we miss the, whole, we miss the bigger picture and the complete meaning. Here we have an example of misleading people into wrong beliefs through the use of a verse. We're in Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. There is the health and wealth gospel. All you need to do is ask, seek, or knock, and God will answer and give. Tell him what you need. Tell him you're a follower, and he will give. We can live an easy life. We can live a life of, of wealth. We can live a life of no trials. We can live a life of early retirement, maybe. All you need to do is ask. You're a follower of God. Simply ask, and he'll give you what you're asking for. That seems to be what it says. And many have built ministries on the health and wealth gospel, that all you need to do to live a good life in this life is ask. God says so. Ask, and it will be open to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be open to you. But really, that's the message of this verse? That's what it's saying? The entire message of the Sermon on the Mount, which I've described as Christianity 101, is that God's way is not about this life but about serving others and preparing ourselves for the next one. And all we need to do, we can read all of it or any of it to get that point. But let's go back and read chapter 6 and in verse 19. We can go anywhere to disprove that this is the proof of the health and wealth gospel. We can, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, we can talk about charitable deeds and doing things in private where you're doing any good, do it privately so that no one knows so that this is not about building up your reputation, but this is actually just doing good for someone so that no one knows about it. We can go back to the law and talk about Christ showing that the law was about this, but really the intent was this. This is all 
asking you, this is, this is changing their mindset. These were people that had had a certain mindset for thousands of years. And Christ was coming to say, you've, you've misrepresented what I was trying to say. You need to understand this. You need to understand that it is not about that. It is about this. And here is a great example, chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It is not about this life. It is about the next one. So how can we then say, amongst all that we read, Christ's teaching, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we come to the end, and then he says, you know what? Whatever you want, just ask and you'll get it. That's, that, that can't be what it's talking about. This is a completely changing mindset of people that thought a certain way for thousands of years. And what he's saying is, there is a different way. I'm going to show you, but you need to ask. You want to know this way? Ask and I'll tell you. You want to find out the way to the kingdom of God? Just seek it and knock on the door and I'll open and I'll show you the way. It is not about the health and wealth gospel. But by not get it, reading that verse in context, it certainly seems like it could be the health and wealth gospel. You can take that out and you can say, you know what? I'm a follower of God. God owes me. I'm following you, God. You owe me. Here's now what I'm asking for. I want this, I want this, and I want this. And I don't want this, and don't give me this. And I'm faithfully coming to church, and I'm faithfully praying, I'm faithfully giving you my tithes. So you owe me because that's what, that's what it said. Context. context. Context, again, is key. And we see that. God's laws are to help change us from the inside if we truly understand what they are. And that was what Christ was trying to convey to them. Why is this bad? What happens when people believe this? They come to God in hopes of living a prosperous life. And then they get a life of trials. They get a life of sickness. They get a life of poverty. And they say, that's not what I signed up for. You said if I followed you, I would get this. But now I have a life, I'm poor. I don't know where my next meal is coming from. Maybe I have cancer. Maybe I have sadness. Maybe my family's all left me. And they they give up this life because they go, this isn't what I signed up for. I I read read this, and it says, whatever I want, I get. So we can see here why this is bad, why pulling something out of context can completely obliterate the gospel of God. Acts chapter 10. Again, some of these are obvious, but the point here is to look at Scripture and show that context answers everything. When we see that the Bible, we always hear that the Bible, let the Bible interpret itself, what really that is saying is context. Get the entire message of the Bible. What seems like, here's, not, here's what it says, like that, what we just read in Matthew, that could be what it says, but when you read the entire message, when you get the entire message of God, things clear up pretty quickly. Acts chapter 10 and verse 15. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Therefore, we can eat anything. 
That's what it says. Peter has a dream. Peter has a dream. The next day, let's read the dream. The next day, verse 9, as they went on their journey and drew, drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they, were, while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let, and let down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I never have eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, saying, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. So, let's go have a bacon burger, pork hot dog, stuffed with shrimp, and anything else we want. Because the Bible says, what God, God, let's, that, uh, uh, what God has cleansed, you must not call common or unclean. So God must have cleansed all of the animals. We read verse 14, where Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Common and unclean. Common being fit for, for sacrifice, which were all animals were. Unclean has to do with the, the foods that you are allowed to intake. God didn't even answer with the word unclean. He said he made all things. Do, uh, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. We know what Peter then, like we're going to read what Peter came to learn. Verse 17. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, so Peter at this point had no clue what this meant. Peter had no clue. Behold, the men who had been seen from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. When Peter, while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting for nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had, who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he who comes. I am he, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nations of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Now remember what we first read. Peter had no idea what this dream was about. So he was, he was confused. Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I ask then, for what reason have you sent me? We, we take time, you can take time on your own to read Cornelius' answer. But for time's sake, let's go down to verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. And then verse 44. 
While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who had heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. So let's go back to God's statement, the voice that came to Peter. What God has cleansed, you must not also call common. Immediately after that dream, when Peter was confused, Peter is placed in a situation where a Gentile and his family are clearly being called. Clearly being called. We just read that. So Peter has a dream. uh, God teaches him something, says something that he's confused by. It sort of looks like food. sort of looks like it's the food issue. That all food has been made clean. But Peter's confused. So Peter doesn't know that that's what it is. So Peter has no idea. So we're reading, we, based on that verse, people come to say, all food is clean. But not even Peter knew that. Peter was confused. He didn't know what it meant. So when he's confused, what does God do? He immediately puts him in a situation where there are people of Gentile, the Gentile background who are being called. And Peter all of a sudden realizes that's what that was about. God is calling people that aren't Jewish to the faith. That's what that's about. If that was about food, why didn't they go out and have a meal of pig? Wouldn't that make sense? So Peter's confused. I don't know what this means. So, and they went to Cornelius' house. Cornelius pulls out a pig and they have a roast. And we all know that's what it means. Because how many times in the Bible have we ta- read places where there, were, there was food eaten? Abraham uh, and Melchizedek. Abraham and the angel. Um, uh, the prodigal son kills the fatted calf. The, the food was known. If calf, lamb. We know what they, what, they, what they killed. We know what they ate. Here, let's go kill a pig and let's eat a pig because obviously God's teaching us something different. They didn't do that. God put Paul, Peter in a situation where it was clear Gentiles were being called. So Peter's confused. It gets cleared up pretty quick that these folks are people that I'm not even, according to the law, I'm not even supposed to be here with them, but man, they're acting better than the, 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 my brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith. So clearly something's going on here. There's an example of pulling a verse out and not reading it in context. Why not go have a meal? That, that, that's my question. Peter's confused. Let's clear it up. Peter goes down to Cornelius' house. That's where he was told to go. Come on in. We'll share a meal. And it's pig. If Cornelius serves pig, there's your answer. Man, God cleaned up, God cleaned up the animals. That must be what it means. God has shown me we've cleaned up animals. That's not what he said. He said, God has shown me all people are, can be called. Again, an example of context. An example of context. There are other examples, including, and we're not going to go into this, but including the many misinterpretations of the book of Revelation. There are good interpretations of Revelation. It's a valuable book. There are also misinterpretations. And we won't take the time or open that can of worms here. We can do it afterwards if we want. But again, it's based on not understanding the context of the book. 
We certainly, again, don't have time to delve into this today, but there is extreme value in the prophetic messages of Revelation and the Old Testament prophets. But churches get into trouble, in my opinion, when context is not considered. And remember the definition of context. The circumstances that form the setting for an event, a statement, or an idea. Hang on here. I I did not uh, give you the the, uh, definition of context here, and I'm looking for it on my, my notes. Here it is. The definition of context, the circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement, or idea, and in terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. And we think back to that math problem, there's context. We couldn't fully grasp the answer because there's missing information. So churches get into trouble when they misrepresent the messages of the prophets in Revelation when there's not the proper context. Why is this bad? Because it often leads to misguiding people with prophetic messages and missing the main point of pointing people to God's plan of salvation, to his kingdom, and the repentance that is required to partake of that great plan. And that takes understanding that these prophets, the book of Revelation, there's context to them. There's context to them. There's great examples in there that we... that. Would, would, be, would benefit us going through that. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to wind down here for the ne- in the next 10 minutes. And let's just review, in light of what we've been reading here, the importance of reading and studying God's Word. Why is, why is it so important to read and study His Word? Proverbs chapter 1. Verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young men knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and understanding. We want wisdom. We want understanding. We want to know how to live this life, how to act properly in this life, how to get the most out of this life. It begins here. We have an instruction manual that tells us how to get the most out of this life. Who created it? God created it. Let's go to his instruction book to figure out how to get the most out of the life that he created. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And again, nothing we haven't read on several occasions. And they, verse 42... Acts 2, verse 42, and they, the 3,000 souls that are talked about in verse 41, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. 
Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Together, continuing steadfastly in the doctrine. We already read about being steadfast in doctrine. We read that earlier. And doing so together, breaking of bread, keeping the community together, there is value in studying God's word, in rightly dividing the word of God together. Let's go to Acts 17. We're very familiar with the Bereans. Verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So here's another example of folks that together were diligent about their studies. That when they heard something, they dug into it. They wanted to know that it was true. They wanted to know how right it was. They received it with all readiness. They were anxious to to come and receive the word of God. It wasn't just, okay, I'm going to show up for, make my appearance for two hours this week and, and have a coffee and go home. They were, they were anxious to receive the word of God. And when they did, they went back into the scriptures to find out if what they were hearing was true. It is a privilege to be able to read, study, and have access to God's word. We know the history of its writing, its preservation, those who wrote it, those who died salvaging it, those who died to put it together, that we may have access to this book. Why read the Bible, and why is it important to read it in context? Ephesians 4 gives us one reason. Ephesians chapter 4 gives us one reason. Verse 11. And he himself, Ephesians 4, verse 11, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So we are to be, when we receive God's word, it is to equip us for our ministry. Not for the ministry, but for our ministry. Because we are here to serve people and to pass this along. And for, for the ministry and for the edifying of the body. Till, all, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So it's not enough that one of us comes to faith. It's not one, that some of us come. The job is not done until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we, not individuals, but we as a group, should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head of Christ, 
from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. For the body to be truly edified, for all of us to be truly edified, we must be sound in the truth of God. This comes from having the complete message, not part of it. And what we do here, it protects us, like much of the warnings throughout Scripture, to be tossed around by folks that aren't believers in in Christ, that aren't believers of this way of life, that are trying to inject their doctrines upon us. That we are not blown about and put off course and, and, and not sure and steadfast in our footing with doctrine. 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. Another reason, and a final reason, why it is important to read the Bible, to get it in context, and to understand the full meaning of the Word of God. We go to what the, the Scripture reading was. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. Again, recalling that this is Paul's final letter. He's within months of being martyred, perhaps months, weeks maybe. His final letter to his friend and fellow servant, Timothy. But you have carefully followed, verse 10 of chapter 3, you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ, Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you learned them, not being blown about by something you hear that, oh, maybe, maybe this is true. That from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We know what we've learned. We just need to stick to it. We need to, to, to love it enough to never let it go, to know that no matter what happens in the future, we're living very comfortable lives right now. We don't know whether it's in our lifetime, our children's lifetime, our grandchildren's lifetime. We don't know when the stuff that we know is coming is going to come. When we read books like Revelation, when we read books like from some of Paul's letters, we know tough times are going to come. And we read stuff like being ready always to give an answer. We don't know when that's going to come. But we stay strong. We stay strong here We know our Bible. We read it in context. We don't get tossed to and fro because it makes us wise into salvation. Because no matter what happens, we live by it. We do not deny God. We do not deny this life. We do not deny Christ for any reason because we know and we are confident in that next life. All Scripture, verse 16, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for many things for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But we bring all that together that men of God may be made complete, 
thoroughly equipped, not for our service, but for every good work. If you've never read your Bible through from cover to cover, maybe I'm the only one here that hadn't. No show of hands. If you never have, I challenge you to do it. Don't worry about doing it in a year. Don't worry about some timeline that's on an application. Just read it through. Read it through from cover to cover. Don't create undue stress by trying to, but like I did a few times, by falling behind a few days and, oh, I'm not going to get it done in a year. I'm not going to get it done in a year. Read it through. I challenge you to read it through. I encourage you to read it through. After years of never having done it, it is absolutely one of the best things I have ever done. One of the best things I have ever done. All that I thought I knew, all that I was sure I knew, has come to life. Makes sense and is, 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 is alive. And I can't believe it took me as many years as it did. Again, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. When all scripture is taken together as a complete package, as a complete package by the author who is God, and we use it for the many purposes that God gives it, we are made complete. And isn't that the reason that we're all here? To be a complete child of God so that we can in turn serve others as we faithfully wait for the return of the bridegroom. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.